Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to this coming weekend. Coming up, the Oscar nominations are out and it seems like Joker is leading the pack. (laughs) Plus a new Sky drama investigates what would happen if the electricity suddenly went out. This is now a national emergency. We will turn the lights on again. And there's a new live album from this guilty pleasure. You can subscribe to It's Friday on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. And don't forget to leave us a review. But first, the Academy Award nominations are out. It's so long that not everyone makes it to the end, but The Irishman is up for ten awards, including Al Pacino's ninth nomination. It marks 27 nominations for Netflix, more than any other studio. We're going at war with these people. War! Things have gotten out of hand with our friends. This year's awards are also noticeable for what's missing. While Little Women has six nominations... Greta Gerwig missed out in the Best Director category with another all-male playlist this year. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Joining me to work out what it all means and who's likely to walk off with the golden statuette is the Daily Mail's film critic Brian Viner and joining us from the USA, Jackie Stephen, our expert on all things showbiz. Do you know where I'm going to start, uh, Brian? Because <laughs> I've, I've been thumping this tub for a long time. Greater yeah. Gerwig didn't get a BAFTA nomination. She's not got a an Oscar nomination no i think it's disgraceful really um you know it's not that the academy didn't like it because it's nominated for best picture it is nominated for best adapted screenplay there are two acting nominations so you know the voters clearly liked it so why she has been overlooked as best director i simply don't know and you you know you're going to have to say well is it it's just kind of male bias you know there there have only been five women in the whole history of the Oscars nominated for Best Director, and that is that is shameful. Let's just hear a little bit of uh, Little Women. I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe, to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says it. My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Uh, Jackie Stephen, uh, male bias, except I don't think you were that big a fan of that film, were you? Oh, good grief. I fall asleep just listening to the clip of it again. <laughs> no. Flipping heck. I think it's a dreadful film. And the reason that it's all men, the men's films are just much better this year. They just are. And for the most part, they always are. I think that Little Women is one of those boring films I've ever, ever seen in my life. And I don't think it's a great film. I think the men's films, in particularly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, The Irishman, these films in a different league. Little Women was just a boring film pointing the camera a bunch of boring women in dresses and it comes to something when the highlight of the film is Beth dying of scarlet fever that was the most action filled <laughs> point in the whole movie you see you should have got you should have introduced a, sh- uh, a pump action shotgun you, you reckon that would have made it more exciting quite frankly anything would have made it more exciting if you brought in a valium it would have made it more exciting <laughs> now, that's how boring it was are you on the voting panel not yet another female director I loved the film um, A Beautiful Day in the neighborhood. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers. In here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. 
Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? It, it was nice, but it wasn't in the same league as Quentin Tarantino. It was a nice film, but it was good mainly for Matthew Rhys, who, interestingly, isn't up for a, an award. Now, I think that they've really made a mistake. They put Tom Hanks in as supporting actor when he should have been put in for lead actor and Matthew in for supporting, because then I think Matthew would have got nominated. I think Matthew's performance in it is fantastic. I'm not a big Tom Hanks fan anyway. To me, he's always Tom Hanks. But again, it's not up there in the same league. And I think one of the reasons that the films are so violent and aggressive and have more punch is they're made for men. The main people who go to see movies are white males of around the age of 30. So inevitably, films are going to be made for them. And I don't mind that there aren't enough black nominations, enough female nominations. These aren't the people going to see movies. There was a film a couple of years ago called No Country for Old Men. The Best Supporting Actor nomination, however, is Country for Old Men. The average age of the Best Supporting <laughs> Actor nominations is 71. Yeah. I know, and Brad Pitt is the youngest at 56. <laughs> I mean, Brad will win it because Brad's performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, knocks socks off all of them. My name's Cliff. Me an actor? No, I'm a stunt man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, 7.15 a.m. 7.15. Out the door. Out the door. In the car. All right, see you then. Pacino's okay, but again, he's Pacino. But I think that Brad's performance is exceptional. Like, he's a wonderful actor, as well as being the most beautiful man on the planet. Oh, <laughs> He's uh, so gorgeous, honestly. My heart is beating. Brian, who are you thinking is going to win well, these? I, first of all, I'm reeling from what Jackie's just said. I can't believe she should be so disloyal to the sisterhood as to hate little women. <laughs> How can anybody hate little women? It's so charming and such a beguiling film. And I don't know anybody apart from Jackie. It's just because you're a man. Who's, who's, you just want to sleep not. with all the little women. <laughs> Jackie. Typical man. Jackie, you are you're my favourite little woman, I have to say. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, Join the queue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm right at the back of it. There's one big significant difference between the BAFTA nominations and uh, the Academy Awards, which is in the Best Actress, where Cynthia Erivo, who is a yeah. British actress, yeah. is nominated in the Academy Awards for Harriet. The, her own nation's awards didn't even no, seem to a, notice that, she was there. That's a really... I, I think that's another shameful anom an, uh, anomaly. You know, she, she put in a, a really great performance in in that film harriet which kind of came and went here it's about a it's about um an american woman in the in the uh, 19th century who campaigns against slavery who's a former slave herself and she she becomes this very influential anti-slavery uh, activist so it's a more it's a, it's a very american story but that's no reason why she shouldn't be recognized by her own academy as for one of the best performances of the year as an actor i mean she's absolutely wonderful in it calling me to answer gonna keep on keeping on i can feel it in my bones i've made it 100 miles to freedom would you like to pick a new name to mark your freedom character 
I mean, she's absolutely wonderful in it. She really is. And so, yes, it's a shocking oversight, I think. Uh, and I think the Oscar nominations shame the BAFTAs. I really do. Oh, do you? Yeah, do you? absolutely. Uh, uh, Jackie, from what you've been saying, I sense that you think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to walk the... Uh, walk the floor, as it were, and take everything? For me, it's the movie of the year. I'm not sure that it will take everything. I think that 1917, as I said a few weeks ago on here, will do exceptionally well, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Sam Mendes pick up the awards. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail... It will be a massacre. But for me, Quentin Tarantino, this is his masterpiece. He said he's going to give up movies. For me, it was an exceptional film with two incredible central performances from Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. And that, for me, was the movie of the year. Uh, I would give it every award going. The only things I think are very difficult are things like sound editing and, um, you know, sound mixing. How can anybody who's a moviegoer even vote on these things? I think that they should be specialist juries voting on those because for most people, so long as I can hear it, I don't give it Brian, a whatever would, Brian, about are you, sound. Are, are, you, are you as big a Tarantino fan on this? Do you think yeah. they're going to sweep the board? I, 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 don't, I kind of agree with Jackie for, for the first time in this podcast. I think it was a terrific film. And I think, you know, they, they, in Hollywood, they love films about Hollywood. So I, I suspect it will do well. I think she's probably right. I think 1917 uh, it got a Golden Globe. I think it might probably be the favourite to, to, to win the Oscar. Uh, there are other very good films nominated that we shouldn't overlook. I, th- I love Joker, not everybody did. You don't listen to you. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. As you know, I absolutely adored Little Women. I don't think it'll win. So uh, it's a toss-up, I think, between 1917 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Possibly shouldn't overlook Parasite as well, which is a foreign language film and would become the first foreign language film ever to win an Oscar. Is that right? That would be the first time that... Yeah, there have been quite a few nominated, but there's one... Yeah, we all thought uh, Roma was going to win last year, and it didn't. So, um, and And last year, Alfonso Cuaron got was the first director of a foreign language film ever to win best director so you know things are changing slightly um it's a very good film but i think probably 1917 will will get best picture just yeah yes i I think so as well and bombshell was the the movie i enjoyed the most of the year and i thought charlie's was incredible in it yeah well i'm I'm gonna finally put you on, uh, on the spot best picture for you not necessarily the the one that's been nominated, but Best Picture of the Year for you, Brian. I haven't seen a film this year that I'd loved more than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So for Ooh. me, that's Ooh. Best Picture. And Jackie, you, you feel the same? Exactly the same. Exactly Ooh. the same. We're gonna, for me, it was we're gonna close, the year. We're going to close on a rare moment of agreement. <laughs> Brian Viner, <laughs> Jackie Stephen, thank you so much. Now from award-winning films to a surprising awards judge. It's the international best-selling author Lee Child, who's just been revealed as a judge for the prestigious Booker Awards, a first for a popular fiction author. Selling over 100 million copies worldwide, it's said that one of Lee Child's Jack Reacher novels is sold every 20 seconds somewhere in the world. 
They've been translated into 40 languages, adapted into two Hollywood films starring Tom Cruise, and an Amazon TV series is on the way. I, I could go on, Lee, but despite that background, your appointment to the Booker Prize judging panel seemed to come as a surprise to some. Uh, did it surprise you? No, it didn't, because, you know, it's not just about me. There's five people on the Booker panel, and I think that what they tried to do is to look at it as a whole, as a group of five. And instead of just having five literary novelists talking about literary novels, what they wanted to do, I think, was to expand it a little bit so we're all looking in from a different perspective. Sure, you know, I'm the guy that writes the commercial fiction, but then we have a playwright who has a different perspective. We have somebody that was a publisher whose perspective, again, is going to be slightly different. We have a classical scholar, and we have uh, what you might call a sort of mainstream literary novelist, too. And so I think what we're going to get is a kind of, whatever the five version of the word triangulation is, we're going to get a kind of uh, viewpoint, people looking in from different perspectives, so that probably we will end up with maybe a more durable result than if it was just five literary novelists talking about what they do every day. This year it was shared between Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo. Um, Are you going to make sure, Lee, that there's only one winner this time? Well, I think it's very hard to actually end up with with two winners. I mean, probably it's going to come down to one winner like it normally does, but I do have sympathy for that situation. I mean, suppose on the final meeting, all five of us get together and we say the same thing, which is, I cannot decide between book A and book B. They're both brilliant. And if everybody says that and everybody feels the same way, then really it would have to be two books, wouldn't it? I think, though, that's statistically an unlikely outcome, so I bet we will get just one. You're being very diplomatic. Listen, one thing that is certain, there's an awful lot of books you're going to have to read. Uh, Will you have time to write over the next year? Yeah, I mean, uh, I I read a lot anyway, and um, so the reading part of it is not going to be a problem. The problem comes when if you read something that is really, really great, which I expect to, then you get a bit discouraged about your own stuff, or even worse, some, some part of the style starts to leak through or something. Uh, great books are very powerful in terms of the influence they have over writers. I'm not worried about the volume of reading. I'm, I'm more worried about am I going to get, uh, am I going to give up and think uh, I'm no good compared to this lot. It's interesting you say that, that, that in some way, you, subliminally, the style kind of seeps into your own writing. But am I right in saying that you actually studied thriller writing you read an awful lot before you first um put, i was going to say pen to paper put finger to keyboard back in 1995 i mean so how did you avoid sort of ending up copying other people as it were well i didn't read them you know as practice for being a writer myself it's it's more or less the other way around if you spent your life reading you realize you're qualified to be a writer and it was a problem at first, to be honest. I remember one particular book I was reading and uh, while I was writing my first book. And the style, some of the phrasing, some of the rhythms were leaking through. So in those early years, I made a decision only to read nonfiction while I was writing my own book and then catch up later in the year. 
Uh, over the years, though, as I became more secure in the voice of the Reacher series, then that wasn't a problem anymore, so I can read what I like now. But it is, it's the same if you meet a person, you know, if you met a person that had a really engaging way of talking or telling stories or telling jokes, you would, and we do this all the time, you know, we adopt their phrases, we adopt their rhythms and phrasings, and uh, the same thing can happen to a reader. I read out, as often happens with you, the numbers of books you've sold, which I think slightly disguises what a, a supreme work of, of, of writing each of your books are. I mean, I think it's fair to say nobody currently writing is better at making the page turn. How do you do it? I mean, it sounds what? like the stupidest question, but how do you, how do you make me turn that page quite so easily. Well, that's very generous of you to say so. And um, I think there's really just one main factor, which is that uh, I don't know what's going to happen in the story. It's all new to me. I'm making well, you, it up you as mean, I go along. You, you, you don't set out with a rigid structure then at all? Not at all. I don't set out with any structure because to me, the story is the thing. And if I'd planned it out, even in rough detail, even if I'd only made half a page of notes, as if to say, this is happening, that is happening, but really it's this other thing. If I knew that ahead of time, then I would be bored with that story. I'd want the next story. So the only way for me to keep it really lively for myself is to not know. And so I sit down in the morning thinking, wow, what is going to happen today? And that's exactly what the reader does when they pick up the book later. They think, what's going to happen? And the reason why they're intrigued is because I'm intrigued. Uh, One of the other things that always strikes me uh, about Jack Reacher is... He's almost a Western hero, isn't he? He's the he's the slightly distant character coming in to sort out lawlessness. Uh, were you a fan of the Westerns as a kid? Is is that how you see him? Uh, yeah, I do. But ironically, I was not a fan of, of Westerns. I mean, I, I wasn't opposed to them. I just never really read them. You know, they were just wasn't they weren't in our library. Uh, I didn't have access to them. I think the real point is that yes, he was he's a Western character. But that character was not invented in the West. It was invented hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years ago. In the same character shows up in the medieval stories in England, you know, Robin Hood, and uh, certainly throughout Europe, terrible danger throughout a, a lawless continent. And before that, in Scandinavia, and before that, Anglo-Saxons and Greeks and so on. The same character has always shown up, the mysterious stranger, who, when everything is going really bad, the mysterious stranger shows up from nowhere, solves the problem, and then rides off into the sunset. It's your last chance to walk away. Are you kidding? It's five against one. It's three against one. How do you figure? Once I take out the leader, which is you, I'll have to contend with one or two enthusiastic wingmen. Last two guys, they always run. Remember, you wanted this. It's okay. You're okay. Get up. One of the things about Jack Reacher, I think a lot of your fans had a bit of a chuckle. You know, he's six foot four, streak of raw power. Tom Cruise plays him in the movies. Most of us saw him as a kind of, um, well, Clint Eastwood, a Lawrence Delalio figure. You're an Aston Villa fan. He's Paul McGrath, isn't he? 
Yeah, you know, it's uh, he was that is one of his defining characteristics. Obviously, he's a huge guy, and therefore does not need to be physically afraid of anything. Obviously, when you put when you go to the movies, it's always a compromise. It's never going to suit any one reader's picture of the character. But Cruz, I thought, was great in, t- in terms of the internal parts of Reacher. He got the thought processes right. He got the um, the attitudes right. But he he was wrong physically, and of course, the readers were were merciless about it. So, as you say, uh, we've uh, moved from movies to um, Amazon streaming now. That's underway uh, in in production, and so we haven't cast it yet. But we are going to obviously look at the physical much more this time than we did before so six foot four actors should be getting in touch with you now for an audition <laughs> they should yeah <laughs> and happily you know that part of the point is that there's not many jobs for giant actors uh, most actors are small even people that you think are big are actually pretty small and so those big guys probably don't get much work so they're going to be looking forward to it i hope one thing that people always say is write what you know about write what you know i think is pretty bad advice because not many of us know enough or the right stuff to make an exciting thriller you know probably five people in the world actually know it it's much better to write what you feel be in touch with your feelings and be prepared to exploit them i mean for instance here's an example i think every parent in the world knows that feeling where you're in the busy shopping center or something and you look down and your kid is not there and you have that momentary spike of absolute panic and then you look the other way oh and there she is she's fine but if you remember that spike of absolute panic that feeling you can then use that expand it broaden it lengthen it into a book where yeah, you know, maybe a kid does go missing and it takes weeks to find her. You know, write what you feel. Use what you feel, not what you know. What you know is too boring. What you feel is always interesting. Uh, brilliant advice. I hope those who are going to apply for the Booker Prize next year are listening. That that was great. Thank you so much, Lee. And um, I promise I won't mention Aston Villa's result on Sunday. <laughs> oh, dear. I know that is... <laughs> That is the one thing that does not go right in my life. We all need some kind of reality anchor, don't we? Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore the hype and tell us what they really think about this week's new releases. First up, the Daily Mail's film critic, Mr Brian Viner. And what have you been watching, Brian? There's a film out this week called Bombshell, which uh, has made a bit of a stir in the in the Oscar nominations. It's got two acting nominations for Charlize Theron and Margot Robbie. It is the story of Fox News and the downfall of the man, the very powerful man who ran it, a guy called Roger Ailes, uh, who is played very, very well in this film by John Lithgow. He was a a sexual predator who preyed on younger members of staff over many years and eventually, and this predates, slightly predates, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, eventually he was brought down by his own members of staff, uh, a woman called Gretchen Carlson, played in the film by Nicole Kidman, with some slightly disconcerting prosthetics. She has a sort of strangely big chin, a sort of Bruce Forsyth chin. Uh, in this movie. But anyway, I'm sure that maybe that's what the real Gretchen Carson looks like. But she sues 
Roger Ailes. She's first of all fired from her job at Fox News. She then sues him, and that starts the whole ball rolling. And then it becomes a sort of a thriller. Will the most powerful of all the female anchors at Fox News, a woman called Megan Kelly, played brilliantly by Charlize Theron, for who who has won a got an Oscar nomination for that role? Will she join? the other women who are accusing this guy of sexually harassing them, or, or indeed worse. Well, let, let's yeah. just hear him in full sexist action. Women are everywhere. We're letting them play golf and tennis now. HR's on the phone because you called me a skirt. Yeah, it's, yeah. i got to read that manual again. <laughs> the attitude off camera was even worse. You're a man-hater. Learn to get along with the boys. You're sexy, but you're too much work. I have a whole list. Will other women come forward? You may have heard there was a dust-up involving yours truly and presidential contender Donald Trump. There was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. Oh my God, did he just accuse me of anger menstruating? Wait, am I going to be the story? No. No. I'm going to be the story. No. No. Nobody stops watching because of a conflict. They stop watching when there isn't one. Brian, Ailes has been dead. He died fairly soon after uh, the events in this film uh, took place. Um, You can be as rude as you like about the dead. Um, How accurate is it? Do you know? I think it's probably very accurate. Lots of accusations have been made sort of subsequently. And, you know, he, he presided over this this shameful culture of sexual harassment where attractive young women were encouraged to wear very short dresses on and sit behind clear transparent desks so that their legs could be seen he kept saying whenever these women went to see him in his in his office that uh, telling them reminding them that tv is a visual medium uh, and got them to stand up and in the case of the one character in the movie who is a sort of who, who is not based on somebody who actually existed, played by Margot Robbie. So she plays a character called Kayla, who's a young, very ambitious would-be presenter. And th- there's a, a quite a shocking scene. One of the many things that's good about this film is that it doesn't... It, on the one hand, it doesn't pull its punches, but it's nor is it too... You know, we don't actually see any horrific scenes of, of rape or these women being forced to, you know, do sexual acts and all that. But there's a, a, a very shocking scene where she goes in to talk to him. He's the, he's the big boss. She's overawed in his presence. And he gets her to hoist her dress up higher and higher and higher. And she is, you know, she feels kind of besmirched and dirty by this. But she kind of goes back for more because she's very, very ambitious and he uses his power. Uh, he was a very powerful, very successful man running this uh, this network for on behalf of Rupert, Rupert Murdoch, who eventually fires him, you know, and it tells a fascinating story extremely well. It's a very good film. And it's been nominated in the Oscars, so you're giving it the full thumbs up, are oh, it's a, it's, it's Absolutely. It's a, it's a definite hit, yeah. And what else have you been watching? It's a big week for films about injustice. There's a film called Just Mercy, which tells the story of a young, very sort of ideological lawyer called Brian Stevenson, a young black guy played by Michael B. Jordan, who, a true story, entirely true, who in Alabama in the late 80s tried to get a man off death row. The first time I visited death row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me. From a neighborhood just like ours. Could have been me, Mama. But what you're doing is going to make a lot of people upset. You always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most. Your life is still meaningful. And I'm going to do everything possible to keep them from taking it. 
You only know what you're into down here in Alabama when you're guilty from the moment you're born. And this is uh, a character called Walter McMillan who had been accused and convicted of killing a young 18-year-old white girl played by Jamie Foxx, played very well by Jamie Foxx in the film. And it's the story of this, this lawyer and how he's going to get Walter McMillan off this off death row if he can and so there are you know there's a there's a bit of it's you know the, the, it's set in the racist south in Alabama in fact it's in the town where Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird so that gives it sort of an extra element of poignancy and it's you know it tells a very worthwhile valid story we should all know about this guy brian stevenson who really exists who has got many people off death row over the years who were wrongfully convicted and that's a story we should be aware of but the film i think sometimes that films that address miscarriages of justice sometimes try and try and kind of put those miscarriages right in the film rather than just tell the story so i think it kind of tilts too far the other way where it makes this guy out to be a sort of secular saint and the, you know, and death row is this kind of citadel of nobility. Whereas, you know, the only moral vacuums in this film are the police stations and the courtrooms. And so all the whites are desperately racist and, you know, horrible and make your skin crawl. And they, and all the blacks in it are noble and righteous and that may well be the case but it doesn't actually make i don't think for a very good film Um, so you're going well i think it's a miss dull but worthy brian viner thank you very much indeed agent thrills the daily mail's music critic joins me now on hits and misses agent this band that you've been listening to i thought they'd gone long ago yeah well this week one of the one of the big albums is the bombay bicycle club they're a north london guitar band who who almost they seem to go out in a on a high about six years ago they having formed at secondary school they'd been together for 10 years and their their fourth album went to number one their first number one hit they did a massive tour which culminated in a sold out show at Earl's Court they were the last band to play the old Earl's Court and they brought uh, David Gilmore from Pink Floyd came on for a cameo and it was a band who who you'd almost think you know this band have got the world at their feet now this could be the next Coldplay or Blur and of course they split up they didn't actually say they were splitting up. They said they're going to take a hiatus, but they they sold all their equipment. They went. Two of them actually went back to college or went to university for the first time. One of them, uh, one of them studied astronomy, and I think the other one did um, military studies at King's. So they they took a proper break, and I guess the allure of the uh, of the grease paint kind of uh, <laughs> sucked them back in. Everything they, else uh, has gone wrong is the uh, title yeah, of the album. Which, is which is, they, is that autobiographical? Which, which they assure us is a very optimistic title. The oh, onus right. is on the else. Everything else has gone wrong. Everything else has gone wrong, but we're back. Oh, we're right. feeling really positive about things, about ourselves and the world. And it's a very upbeat album. It's got elements of um, New Order. It's a nice mix. They're one of these guitar bands who they use synthesizers. They're very adventurous. They use folky elements. They bring in 
you know, elements of world music, and it's a, it's a very strong comeback. Um, I'm slightly concerned. Six years, it's a bit of a weird gap. It's not as if um, the likes of the Eagles, they left it 28 years before <laughs> you know, they reformed the, the old hell that, I, I think that was the tax man, wasn't it, was yeah. involved in that one. Um, and The Who, I think it was something like 24 years between albums. You know, they kind of called a halt and then came back. Even Blur, I think it was 11 years between them splitting up and then coming back with a new album. Six years, it's... It's long enough for them to lose the momentum they had. Six years ago, they were a band who were on the cusp of becoming the next big British guitar band. So they've lost that momentum. But it's also not quite long enough for nostalgia to kick on. Almost for like a, I think with The Who and The Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, you almost find they skip a generation in terms of their fans and a whole host of young fans come here. I think it's they're a bit of an in-between. Um, and has, it, has the music changed or is it roughly what it was six years well, ago? Well, the thing about Bombay Bicycle Club is that the music seemed to change with every album. The first one was a really energetic, vibrant, indie pop album. And I could go and ask her first well, you could try but it won't work The second one was folky. Life of a selfless man Cause out of all the flaws I've stolen Is the hardest one to focus on The third one brought in elements of world music. If anybody wants to know The one that went to number one used electronic loops. This one's got a bit of everything in it. It's almost like they've gone back and they've said, okay, what was good about those first four albums? We'll take a bit from each of them and put it all together. So it's almost like it's like a greatest hits, which as yet hasn't got the hits, but I think it's, it's a very strong and assured comeback. Uh, and are you going to I'm going to give bless it a hit. It a... I think it's a hit. And who else, uh, Adrian, have you been listening to? Well, the other big one this week, um, it's the first live album from Ariana Grande, the American singer, who she just finished her Sweetener tour at the end of last year, and she's put out a live album, basically from kind of some of the best takes from the best shows on the tour. There's quite a lot from her London show. It's actually a very good live album. And one of the reasons why is, compared to quite a lot of pop shows, her live show, it, it wasn't particularly big on the pyrotechnics. It had no, there was no backing singers. All the vocals, apart from one or two samples, were just her singing. So it was a real showcase for, for a voice that is one of the best in pop. We're going to need you to sing it as loud as you can. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's go. Breakfast at Tiffany's and bottles and bubbles Girls with tattoos who like getting in trouble Lashes and diamonds, ATM machines Buy myself all of my favorite things Then throw some bashing, I should be a savage Who would have thought it turned me to a savage Rather be tied up with calls in my streets In a way, the live album doesn't suffer through the lack of visuals because the visuals were so understated. It's actually one that puts the focus very much on 
the music and the songs. And she's had five albums now, and that gives her quite a substantial repertoire. So she can pick and choose the best songs from those five records, and it's a very strong. Uh, it's a strong live album. And to a wider uh, uh, public, she's known as the artist who was there at the Manchester bombing, um, twenty seventeen. Of course, um, did, that must have affected how she performed. Is she now back on song? As she well, always I think was. It performed her um, in, in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy. She she obviously came back to Manchester and she hosted the One Love concert with um with a whole host justin bieber liam gallagher coldplay she got a really good you know it was done with real dignity to visit a lot of the victims in hospital and I thought her response to it was very well judged and, and dignified. She then took a bit of a break as you as you'd expect. I think she needed I mean she she did finish that tour but she she took a bit of a break from recording and then towards the end of twenty eighteen she came back with a really strong studio album, Sweetener. When raindrops fell down from the sky the day and five months later another studio album it's almost like she's really kind of got her career back on track and now there's this live album it's it's called k by for now which seems to suggest maybe she might now take another break and um and kind of reconsider what her next move is but it's a very strong it's like encapsulates all that's been good about her over the last couple of years and as she reconsiders will she be going off with a thumbs up or a thumbs down from I think it's, a it's thumbs Friday up. I'm a big fan I think she's one of the best voices in pop and it's a strong strong album Adrian Thrills thank you so much for joining us Now the last of this week's hits and misses, this time what's coming up on television with Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's TV critic. Hello, Claudia. Hi, hello. So what should we be watching this week? Okay, well, uh, both of these are on TV tonight. Um, The first one is The Gone Wrong Show, which is on BBC One. Now, this is a franchise, isn't it? They're they're huge in the theatre. The show that goes wrong is an international uh, show around the world. It started off as a huge... I think it was seven years ago that it it was in the West End, and it's become huge. It's by a company called the the Mischief Theatre Company. And then what happened is the BBC have commissioned a six-part comedy 
Didn't they do one over one. Christmas? They did one over Christmas and I, I, I didn't see it, but apparently they did one about three years ago that was also a success as well. And I watched one that's on tonight that's called The Lodge. And I, I've got to say, I watched it thinking, well, I'm not going to like this because it's... I, it's sort of, I mean, it's a satire on farce, but it's it's still farce, which is really not my scene at all. But I was surprised at how funny I found it, actually. I was really surprised because I, I, it's very well done. It's So it's they're playing a sort of an amateur dramatics troupe and they, they star in plays and it all goes horribly wrong. So scenery falls down and people forget their lines and they say something like, Who's that on the phone when, you know, they forgot to make the phone ring? That's a bit. Do you remember Acorn Antiques? Yes. That was yes. In, let, yeah. let, we've got a clip, actually. Let's, let's listen to him making it all go wrong. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> Isn't that what got you chucked off the force to begin with? Betting too much money on things? Remember, Jack, I... I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm the best defence lawyer in the country. You're the best defence lawyer in the country. No, you are. I am. I'm the best defence lawyer in the country. You're right, I'm in good hands. So it it all goes wrong. uh, But does that make it almost paradoxically go right? Yes, I mean, yes, yeah, it it has to go wrong for for it to work. It's only half an hour long and it's what they do is it's filmed in front of a a live audience and it's they just basically recreate the the theatrical show. So uh, the things that go wrong, are they theatrical or have they added an extra element with television? Opportunities. I mean, no, no, you, no, you, so you, you could theatrical. be watching it in the theatre. Right. Yes, yeah, and it's it. It actually takes real skill to to be an actor playing a bad actor, if that makes sense. So, I, I thought it was really funny. I really enjoyed it. So you're going? I'm. I'm saying that that's a hit. What else? So, also on tonight. Yeah, also on tonight on Sky One is is Cobra. This is a big new British drama. Um, Robert Carlyle plays the the prime minister in this and it's um what happens is a, a solar storm hits the uk actually hits the whole world and it and it causes absolute catastrophe there's power blackouts and that slowly leads to to civil unrest this is the prime minister the situation in london today is very grave without fuel and supplies people in the worst affected areas Will die. They've obviously spent a huge amount of money on this because the the special effects are, are incredible. There's a plane crash at the beginning that's amazing. That's like something you would see in in a blockbuster movie at the cinema. So you've got the 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 issue with the um, the solar storm, but also there's a, there's sort of political intrigue because the prime minister has a, a snake of a home secretary that's after his job. And then with all the characters, you start there are sort of strands of their their private life that start to sort of trickle in. Carlisle is a terrific actor. He's, yes, Not he's seen often enough on British TV. No, he's been in been, the States for a long yeah. time. What's his performance like? It's he, He's very good. He's quite underplayed. I, I felt that it was possibly based on a, sort of a David Cameron. He's a Tory MP. And but a Scottish Tory, which is an unlikely he, thought, yes, isn't well, it? With a, a very sort of softened accent, though. Yes. A posh, posh yes, Scot. Yes, a posh Scot, yes. It's, you know, the, that, the dialogue is, is really hammy. And that if, you, if you examine... <laughs> what, hammier than the show that goes wrong? <laughs> yeah, yes. And there's there's an awful lot of holes in the plot. Oh, so where are you well, going with this? Hit or miss? you know what? I've had to think about this because I think, well, what, what makes a good TV show? Is it enjoying it, which I did? And is it wanting to watch the next episode, which I do? So I'm, I'm going to have to say that this is a hit as well. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Claudia. Well, now you know what's worth seeing and really what's not worth getting out of bed for. My thanks to Brian, Adrian and Claudia. Let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic and who better to tell us than the male's own Jackie Stephen. Uh, Jackie, we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but the big story over here is what's going on in Once Upon a Time in Sandringham. Uh, how are Harry and Meghan viewed across the pond? They are very much pro-Meghan in America and everyone is obsessed with it. It's top of the news stories, it's top of the showbiz stories. Uh, everyone just wants to know what's going to happen and what's happening behind the scenes. What's interesting about her is that she's a much better actress in reality than she ever was when she was in Suits. <laughs> she's, play- she's playing this for all she's worth. And to me, it seems that there's uh, a plan that she's had all along. And I said weeks ago on here that he married his mother. He married a very manipulative woman. And because he's very vulnerable, you know, he's been very open about his mental health problems. I worry for him. I really do. And I think that she never had any intention of living in Britain. This whole thing now about, oh, it's not working for me. I don't think she ever had any intention of staying here at all. She liked the big wedding. But once an actress, always an actress. And I would never get involved with an actor because at heart they are narcissists. That's why they prefer playing other roles. And I think that she is the ultimate narcissist. She wanted all the attention and now she's had the attention and now she wants the focus to be back on her. She never sacked her agent. She never sacked her lawyer. She was always intending to go back to LA. I don't believe for a second that they will settle in Canada unless, of course, she has a site set on Justin Trudeau. But she'll have to join the queue there with Ivanka Trump because she has a site <laughs> set on him as well. One of the things that was suggested in the British press was that Harry and Meghan had a threat that they would go to the US press with a story about behind the scenes, the bombshell story. What do you think that would have been? I mean, what it, what, what, what were they looking to uh, expose? What was the threat? I think that the main thing that they want to expose is the racism. And it's always been there. Uh, I, I think that the royal family are very, very traditional, as we know. I wouldn't be surprised if Meghan doesn't go to the press because she has a story to tell that nobody else has told. And she doesn't care. And I think this is the thing that the Americans are very interested in. For the first time, they're getting a glimpse behind the the scenes of the royal family that they've never had before because it's very much a closed shop. Do you think there's movie in this? Do you think she's being rung all the time by producers trying to get her on side? I think that's... What's happening with Meghan and Harry bears less of a relationship to the crown. I think it's more to do with the TV series Succession, which is about a dynasty that falls apart when it implodes from the inside. And... To me, it bears much more resemblance to that. I think without a doubt, she is writing something. She's been keeping copious notes. I think she's very devious. And I think Harry's been had. And do you think there's work? She's, she's, she's already started working again, hasn't she? Or, or at least getting involved in projects. I mean, how do you see that working out? Well, the interesting thing about this is that Harry has been touting her. He went to a party... And he touted her for the head, <laughs> the head of Disney to Bob Iger, uh, trying to get her voiceover work. And she now has voiceover work for Disney. And she's saying, oh, the money's going to an elephant charity. Well, it may be, but it's her getting her foot back into the American market. Harry is her new agent. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes, and it's, oh, I think it's really sad what's happening to him. And for him now to be at war with his brother, his family, I think he's going to get to Vancouver Island or wherever she's holed up at the moment. And it's going to be a disaster. And I think he'll realise how much he misses his family. I also think that she's probably pregnant and that she wants another baby born in Canada or the USA. That's my theory. Psychic Jackie, you heard it here first. We heard it here first. Jackie Stevens, thank you so much for joining us. And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. You can subscribe to It's Friday on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. And don't forget to leave us a review. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. Goodbye.